Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, innovators, and sometimes people with just fascinating stories. Today, we're talking with journalist Amy Nordrum, a frequent guest on WNYC and NPR's Science Friday. She also is the executive editor of the MIT Technology Review. We're talking about the review's 2024 Breakthrough Technologies. Amy, MIT's Technology Review, the 10 Breakthrough Technologies for each year, this year, 2024, how does the organization or how does your publication go about selecting of all the technology breakthroughs, the 10 top? Great question. It's a tricky process, I will say. It takes us a couple of months uh, to arrive at the list every year. And the way it works in our newsroom is every editor and reporter brings forward ideas, uh, usually starting back in the summer for the following year's list. So we get a good early start on this. And people essentially pitch items that they think ought to make the list, usually from their respective beats that they cover, uh, things that they've been following and feel like have really reached this important critical breakthrough moment. And then we take all those pitches, we put them together in one big document, and we discuss them. We kind of debate the merits of different ones. You know, should we include this or that? You know, did this really have a breakthrough moment uh, this year or is it poised to do that uh, next year? And we, at some point, take a staff vote just to see what people are most excited about, kind of what's raising, rising to the surface uh, for our group of editors and reporters. And in the end, we have to, you know, only select 10. It's a list of 10 things. So we've got to get it down to that and make some tough calls. Um, and yeah, we want like a good mix of different things on the list. So we're always looking at advances from different fields. We're looking at uh, a mix of you know consumer technologies and bigger infrastructure projects or scientific instruments, and so we also kind of try to balance the list out like that in our in our final discussions. Now, when the list finally comes out in your publication, MIT Technology Review, and it comes out online as in 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 various forms, are the the ten top ranked? I know they are numbered from one to ten. Uh, but uh, I didn't know whether they were ranked. Number one is the biggest breakthrough and number 10 is the least biggest breakthrough. No, we don't rank them. That would add a whole nother layer of complexity that, uh, <laughs> frankly, I'm glad we don't do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's it's 10 very different uh, technologies in all different areas. And, you know, we choose them for very different reasons. I think it would actually be quite hard 
uh, to rank them. We do think they will all have a major impact on our world moving forward, you know, whether that's the way that we work or the way that we live or the way that, you know, health, uh, healthcare um, evolves. There's a lot of different aspects uh, represented on the list of the way that we think things will go. Um, so it, I think it would be really tough actually to rank them because we think they will all have some, you know, meaningful impacts on on our lives and um, very, but very different, very different impacts depending on which technology you're talking about. Now, I noticed, and this is not a criticism, uh, I noticed <laughs> that you and your staff hedged a little bit this year, and you had an 11th one mm-hmm. uh, that you had people vote on. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that. Sure. Well, you're right. We do sometimes hedge. I mean, it's it's a, uh, you know, technology is a space where, there is so much hype and we're very aware of that and we're uh, deliberate about the way that we frame the items on the list and the way that we think about it So, because we don't want to contribute to that. We want to really try and help people have a very clear-eyed view of, of what's going on and what's really important. So sometimes we do hedge. We'll, you know, we'll... Um, include, you know, a particular frame on one item, or we'll, you know, add some caveats about for this to really, you know, happen, it's going to require this or that. And we, we try to bake all that context into the list. So I actually, I, I'll take that as a compliment um, <laughs> in terms of the the way we did the list this year. But you're right. We also, you know, at the end of the day, we can't include everything that we think is interesting or important on the list uh, because there's only 10 items. And we've, you know, we've talked about dozens in the process of getting down to those 10. So we do have a, a 11th breakthrough, as we call it, that uh, anybody can come in and vote on uh, until mid-April when the poll closes. And so this is uh, your opportunity to choose between four items that didn't make the list, they didn't make our list, but you know we're still open to other views on kind of what's most important and what's um, interesting to you. And so we've, we've put four items there for other technologies that we did discuss in our process, but ultimately didn't select. And we want to know kind of which of those four uh, our audience is most interested in and would like to uh, would like us to add to the list essentially as the as the 11th breakthrough. And if our audience wants to uh, really look at this in depth, how do they go about uh, finding these 10 breakthrough technologies? And is it free of charge or do they have to subscribe? Sure. Yeah, you can look at the landing page uh, free of charge. It is at technologyreview.com. You'll be able to get to it uh, from our homepage there. And the poll that we just uh, talked about is at the very bottom of the landing page. So you'll go through all 10 technologies. And at the bottom, you'll see four options uh, of other technologies that that you can vote on. It, talk about hedging, and, and we'll get to this a little later. Uh, you, you, even in, in December, came out with five things you didn't put on the list. So now we have, what, a total of 16 uh, items, correct? Right. There's a lot to explore there. And, you know, one reason we do this other list that I have now done for two years um, of, of stuff that didn't make it is just to show some like transparency around our thinking and our process, because, you know, at the end of the day, we, we put our best uh, thinking into this list. And I'm always very proud of, of what we come up with. But, you know, there are some subjective calls we make and there's plenty of other you know interesting technologies out there. And so we want I wanted to highlight uh, a couple on this other list, the stuff that didn't make it, didn't make the official list, uh, and just provide some context for people of what the discussions were around those things, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit on our editorial process and kind of, you know, bring you into the the discussions that we had around uh, those other five items that we ultimately didn't choose. Because I, I think it's also interesting, like, to talk about what what didn't make it and why, and why didn't we feel like this was the year for this or that. 
Well, let's go to the top 10 list, and, and let me just give you my overview and, and see if uh, you've had any feedback or whether I'm an outlier uh, on, on this. <laughs> the, the top 10 list seems to include a lot of things that I, I looked at and went, oh, that makes sense, or yeah, that, that, uh, that's, that's an obvious choice. And then other things are a little more uh, complex and, and things that I, I wasn't aware of. Uh, is this list typical this year or atypical? <laughs> I'm glad you said that because we actually look for that kind of mix. And I would say this is pretty typical. You know, we want there to be things on the list that register for people that they have heard about that are, you know, do have massive um, you know, consumer appeal or just like that have been in the news for because you know it's a it's a major um, science, new scientific instrument that we're all excited to see, you know, launch. So there's definitely some familiar items, I, I think, I hope to everyone on the list. Um, and hopefully you will have that feeling looking through it like, oh, yeah, this I, you know, I've heard of this or this makes sense or I've actually tried this myself, but we don't want it to all be that um, because we also want to surface things for people that you are a little bit more under the radar. You know, you might not be paying close attention to what's really important in climate technology, or you might not have heard about this other, you know, major infrastructure project that's actually critical to reducing emissions, but, um, you know, just isn't something that a normal, per like a normal person would interact with every day. So we also want to like surface those other more surprising um, developments that could be just as impactful, but just aren't, you know, aren't as obvious to most people. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you felt that the list uh, did both those things for you. Let's go through the list and let's start with number one, AI for everything. Uh, I think that we've all heard of AI. We sort of all know what it is. Uh, we don't know exactly how it's going to work and how it's going to interfere or integrate into our lives, uh, depending on your point of view. Uh, this is massive, is it not? It is. And you can tell by the frame on this one that we just really went very broad because that is, I think, you know, reflective of the moment we are experiencing with artificial intelligence right now. Uh, we're calling it AI for everything because, you know, we really want to capture all that's happened in the last year and will, you know, will still happen in the year to come. It's really been a wild time for AI, uh, a breakthrough moment for AI, if you will. Uh, you know, the public started interacting with AI directly for the first time, just playing around with these tools like ChatGPT that let you type stuff into a box and then generate a really, you know, interesting uh, response, written response or image of of something that you've got in your imagination. Uh, and this all really has come to the fore in the last year and a half with the release of ChatGPT. But there's been so many other generative AI tools that have come out and are now being incorporated into search and chatbots and email and all kinds of other spots. So there's just been this explosion of interest in an investment around generative AI. And I really just think we're at the beginning of seeing, you know, how this will pan out and where, where it'll go from here. Um, but it's been, you know, a really interesting development for our, our team to cover. Um, and we wanted to, you know, we wanted to, to frame this item in a way that uh, captured the, you know, the broad impact uh, and appeal that these tools have had. I think people have either a direct relationship with AI through things like ChatGPT and, and and other other forms of uh, AI, but AI is behind the scenes in so much 
of our lives and so many things that we do, that's where I don't think people realize so much. You're right. And I mean, it's starting to uh, make its way into all kinds of different you know, software programs that uh, professionals in a variety of fields are using. Adobe now has Firefly uh, to help creators make images or effects, you know, right there in their photo editing software. You know, Microsoft is a big partner of an investor of OpenAI, um, and it's using OpenAI's models to power the Bing search engine now and is also really going big on uh, making generative AI tools for software developers so that help them generate uh, code. And then Google just recently released its new Gemini model, which is better uh, by many measures than OpenAI's chat, uh, OpenAI's GPT-4 model. And that Gemini model is now powering Google's uh, Bard chatbot for search. So there's just, you know, even if you're not using it directly, and if, if you're not in there with ChatGPT talking to it every day, there's all kinds of stuff that you might be using or that you, services that you might be benefiting from that are now integrating generative AI uh, in, in so many different ways. Number two on your list is something that uh, people will, I think, take for granted, uh, but you have a, a adjective ahead of it, super efficient solar cells. Now, people know about solar cells, and some people have them on their homes or, or other places, but that's not what you're talking about. Right. We're talking about those plus something new. So the something new here is uh, really taking traditional silicon solar panels that people are familiar with and that have been deployed, you know, millions and millions uh, across the country and around the world and trying to make those better, trying to make those even more efficient by adding a thin layer of something called perovskites, which are little crystals that absorb different wavelengths of light than traditional silicon cells can. So you're basically taking a standard silicon cell and then layering uh, a new uh, type of crystal on top that can help it absorb more of the sun's energy and convert more of that into electricity. And so this is a pretty new technology. It ha I mean, it has been in development for some time, but in terms of um, its commercial readiness, there's been a lot of challenges to overcome. Perovskites are quite delicate materials. Uh, they are very sensitive to things like light and water. They could degrade very easily. And so researchers at you know, academic uh, institutions as well as companies have been working for a long time to try and figure out how to manufacture these at scale and integrate them into, uh, you know, the manufacturing uh, process for, for traditional silicon panels. But they are getting closer. There have been some good signs of progress. Uh, and there are a couple companies, uh, including one called Oxford PV, that's kind of a leader in this space, that say they plan to put out these new types of panels and integrate the the perovskite crystals within the next couple of years. So we felt um, there were enough signs here to go ahead and put them on the list. And, you know, this could really improve the efficiency of uh, solar panels in the future, which are such an important technology uh, to mitigating the impacts of climate change. The next item is Apple Vision Pro. And, and before we get into this, uh, this is supposed, I, I, I understand, come out in the month of February. Uh, and from my view of it, uh, if people want to, to see it, they've got all kinds of things online where, where you can see how it works. It's sort of a combination of the old Google Glasses and a virtual reality mask. Uh, but why is this so different? 
Well, you're right. The Apple Vision Pro is now out in the U.S. I uh, haven't tried it myself, but I've signed up for a demo, which I'm very excited to to go and test it out. Uh, and so this headset uh, was kind of a bold one for us to put on the list because it's not out yet or hadn't been at the time that we we made the list. But we put it on the list because of the display that it has. It has a very special display uh, using what's called micro LED micro OLED uh, technology. And this will make it the highest resolution headset to ever hit the market. So you've heard, I'm sure, of previous VR um, and AR projects, whether it's Google Glass or um, you know various other Oculus and, and Meta headsets that are, are out there today. Uh, so those, those use a different kind of display. Those Most VR headsets are using what's called a liquid crystal display. The contrast is not as sharp uh, for, for those. The colors are not as bright. Uh, but this Apple, this new Apple Vision Pro headset will have uh, these micro OLEDs that will really be the first large-scale demonstration of this technology. Uh, this used- is your TV in a headset. Yeah, they've been used in TVs before. Yeah, Samsung did a lot of work developing yeah. micro OLEDs. And so they have been Except used. Except better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But now, you know, for this headset, um, it could be really transformational technology in terms of, uh, and in, in Apple's case, they're using it for mixed reality. So overlaying a, uh, a bit of digital content on top of your real world, um, your real world environment. So kind of a different thing from traditional VR as well. Do you, do you think that this will explode? Uh, <laughs> not, not, right? not literally, but I mean, is, is this yeah. the, the, the yeah. next iPhone uh, explosion? I think that, uh, I mean, I personally think that you know, Apple investing in this space and making this product is going to give mixed reality its best chance ever uh, to catch on. I mean, if, you know, if it's ever going to catch on, Apple betting on this will probably is more likely to make it so than any other company. I'm not yet sure, though, what people are going to use this headset for or if they will feel like they need it in their lives. It's also still quite expensive, $3,500. So I don't think it's going to be a mass, you know, consumer product. Um right away. I think it's the first generation of something that could be quite interesting down the line in terms of integrating mixed reality into our lives and making a lot of things more seamless. Um, but yeah, I think uh, we'll see. I mean, I think it really needs kind of a killer app still. Like there's a lot of different apps that it will be developed for it. Um, Apple has a number already uh, that will be available and then third-party developers will have their chance to, to make things with it. And I think it kind of depends if people see something that is really a lot better using um, this headset versus without it, that will, that will make the difference. But, uh, you know, we don't know yet. We don't know that yet. So I have to have people get their hands on it and, and test it out to see if that, if that happens. Weight loss drugs, number four. And then we've already seen this, uh, certainly if anybody follows the entertainment world or Hollywood or, or almost anyone, uh, you've seen uh, weight loss drugs uh, in 2023. How is 2024 going to be different? Well, we think, um, you know, the reason we put it on the list this year was really because these drugs have come into the public consciousness in such a huge way for all the reasons that you just mentioned. And they're not new medications necessarily. A lot of these were originally developed for diabetes uh, years ago and have have been used for that uh, for quite some time. But they are now increasingly being used for weight loss. And there are new ones being approved uh, for weight loss. Uh, even just as recently as December, there was a new one called ZepBound uh, that, that was approved for this. So they're, they're 
there's more options coming to the market now. There is a huge spike in demand because of uh, the public awareness of these medications. And we think that will really only continue into 2024. Uh, the companies that make, make these are actually having trouble manufacturing enough to keep up. Um, and, you know, they've really, they're not, um, they're not perfect, but they really could have a trend, like a huge transformational impact on individual and, and public health because obesity is such a major, uh, major problem. So uh, we wanted to definitely like recognize the, the potential impact and um, popularity of, of these drugs and the way that they're being used today. I want to jump down to to two other things that uh, people would probably wonder why they're on the list. Uh, one is heat pumps. Uh, we've had heat pumps in our homes for for ages. Why all of a sudden is there a breakthrough in heat pumps? Yep, fair question. <laughs> so sometimes with uh, our list, we actually don't put something on the list. Right away, we, we wait until it reaches an important um, moment in an, uh, adoption rather than, you know, the technology itself being ready because, you know, you can have a technology uh, that works great, but if it's not out there in a big way, it might not actually have as much impact as it could potentially have. And so uh, electric vehicles is an example of this with the previous year's list um, that had been around for a while, but we're reaching kind of this important breakthrough moment in terms of adoption. And this year, uh, the item that kind of falls in that category for us was heat pumps. So they are, you know, very much an older technology that's been around uh, for decades, but sales have really started to pick up these last couple of years, especially in Europe because of the energy crisis. And also here in the U.S., uh, there have been in the last year or two, just uh, sales figures that show that there are more heat pumps now being sold than gas furnaces, which is um, what they're they're often replacing. So they're really gaining traction here as well. There's many um, state uh, and local programs to incentivize people installing heat pumps in their home, as well as federal federal incentives. So uh, all of that has added up to a moment that we felt, um, you know, the adoption curve was really shifting for heat pumps in an important way, and we wanted to to put a spotlight on that. The other one that I, I thought, not odd, but I thought uh, it, it piqued my interest, let me just say that, is Twitter killers. You know, uh, <laughs> that's, that seemed to not necessarily be a breakthrough in technology, but you say it is. Well, fair enough. I mean, I will say part of the fun of putting this list out is to hear what people disagree with in their own perspectives. And so you're absolutely welcome to disagree with any of these. Oh, uh, I don't disagree. I just thought it was, it just was interesting. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you why we put it on there and then, you know, you can think what you think, obviously. Um, so Twitter, yeah. So Twitter killers, just to be, just to be clear, is kind of our name for all the new, um, social media options that have popped up as Twitter or now called X has lost users, lost advertisers. So we're talking here about services like Mastodon, Blue Sky, Threads, lots of these alternative options, uh, some of which are operating on decentralized protocols meant to give users more and moderators more control over their data or their online experience. And no, we've we put we put this we put them all in a basket together and put them on the list because we felt like there was this, you know, big kind of cultural shift in the way that we meet and talk to each other online, and we can see some of these platforms, um, these alternative platforms, really starting to uh, pick up after 
people have left Twitter or X, these, there are actually new viable options for people to shift to, which hasn't always been the case, even though some have been disenchanted with Twitter for quite some time, especially threads. It's really gained the most users the most quickly. It had, I think, nearly 100 million um, monthly users soon after it it uh, started. So, you know, we don't quite yet know. I think we're it's still a very kind of fractured space and there's a lot of people who are still testing these out and seeing what works for them. Um, but there are enough good alternatives out there that we wanted to uh, recognize this moment in social media and uh, how we interact online. Let, let me put forth a, just a, a lay view of this. It sure. looks like through Twitter and other uh, forms of social media that we've had, uh, it's been sort of the, the town hall or the uh, marketplace of ideas, good or bad, but you're speaking to a very large audience of people who mm-hmm. agree with you or disagree with you. You know, if you look at cable news, which is now segmented and siloed as to whether you're a conservative, whether you're a MAGA, whether you're a regular conservative, whether you're a liberal, you only watch the news in your silo. It seems that these new forms of social media are more siloed than the older ones. And what is that going to do to our national conversation. Mm, that's a really interesting observation. I could see that, um, you know, Blue Sky, I believe, if this is still the case for a long time, it was uh, invite only. So you literally had to know somebody on the, you know, on it in order to get on it yourself, um, which is kind of maybe the definition of a silo <laughs> in some ways. Uh, although I know they have plans to open it, open it up more. So, you know, I think, I think it's hard to know at this stage what it will mean for the national conversation. Um, and I do think a lot is in flux and there's a lot of kind of shifts happening here right now. And um, yeah, I don't, I think your observation is correct though. I think that that, that makes a lot of sense what you're saying in terms of maybe all of us retreating deeper into those silos, which is probably not for the best. Well, let's move on. Uh we have four more on the top 10 list, and one of them that really intrigued me was the first gene editing treatment. Um, people are always looking at new medical treatments. Talk about that one. Yes, the first gene editing uh, treatment, this is our term for the first drug based on CRISPR, uh, the gene editing technology that was approved in the U.S., Uh, This was approved back in December by the FDA. The UK approved it about a month prior, and it's a treatment to treat uh, sickle cell disease, very devastating illness. Um, It's just a huge deal because CRISPR, I'm sure your audience has heard for years, has has been in the news. It was discovered more than a decade ago now, but uh, now it's really starting to make its way into actual treatments that are on the market. And this was the first one uh, to be approved, so we absolutely wanted to to recognize that moment, but there are many more in the pipeline uh, and new generations of CRISPR as well. And there will be others, others to come, which is really exciting. Anything in the medical field that's a breakthrough of technology, I think uh, really gets people interested. Uh, and, and of all of the breakthroughs, you, you all th- thought this was the most important. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way about this space. The um, the impact is so significant and so clear, especially when you talk with people who are affected by these diseases. We had a, an op-ed published by one of the patients who was in the clinical trial for this uh, this sickle cell disease, you know, CRISPR-based tre- treatment. So he's one of the first people ever to uh, experience the effects of CRISPR himself. And he wrote a really beautiful op-ed about... Um, what it meant for him to overcome this very debilitating illness, how it's changed his life, his relationship with his family, his, his outlook. And it wasn't an easy to treatment to go through this. Um, you know, this treatment is pretty you know, rigorous, requires a hospital stay. You have to have essentially a bone marrow transplant. It's very invasive, um, time consuming procedure. So it, uh, you know, I don't, it probably won't be a treatment that every person with sickle cell disease gets, but certainly in severe cases, which, and his was, you know, it just has had a profound impact on his life and um, really nice to see uh, how can, te- how technology can do that for people. One of the next ones on your list is enhanced geothermal systems. Um, that's, a, that's an impressive title. <laughs> Yes, so we are setting this apart uh, through the title from you know g- traditional geothermal, which uh, a lot of people may have heard of. You know, geothermal is really an excellent stable source of renewable energy, um, tapping heat that's in the ground. Um, but it's only really been practical in places where there's certain geological features and the heat is pretty close to the surface uh, of the ground. But now with fracking techniques that are have really been developed by the oil and gas industry, uh, companies are able to crack open more rocks and inject water uh, deeper to get geothermal facilities working in more places. And there's one company named Fervo, uh, which showed that this was possible at a commercial pilot plant last year. And then um, at the end of last year, started uh, producing power uh, for the grid um, using this facility. So there are a couple other companies that are working on this and it could potentially make geothermal possible in many more places, which is really exciting because it's such a fantastic source of baseload energy. You know, it doesn't, it's renewable, but it doesn't vary with the weather or the time of day, like wind and solar do. The last two items on your list, both uh, have to do with computers. Uh, So I'll, I'll lump them together. The first is chiplets and the second is Exascale computers. So, uh, why don't you start off with chiplets? Uh, educate us. Okay. All right. I'll start with chiplets. Um, so, if you've ever heard of a thing called Moore's Law, you know that every two years, the number of transistors on a chip has been doubling for decades as engineers are figuring out ways to make those transistors smaller and smaller. But it's getting a lot harder to do that. So a lot of manufacturers are now turning to what's called chiplets. These are smaller, more specialized versions of conventional computer chips, and they can be linked together in different ways to build a system that performs similarly similarly to a computer chip. And there's some advantages to doing it this way. They uh, might be cheaper to manufacture. They could be easier to swap out if something goes wrong. They can also be configured into different architectures to suit whatever application someone's building. So they have more flexibility in what you can kind of emphasize or optimize a system for. Uh, Intel and AMD have gone really big into this and Apple is now using chiplets uh, as well in one of its new processors. And there's real attention across the whole industry now on creating common standards for these chiplets to make them interoperable, which should really boost adoption. So this, the attention to standards and the momentum from so many big companies around this new uh, technology is what what made us put them on the list this year. And Exascale, that's E-X-A, 
S-C-A-L-E, Exascale Computers. Mm -hmm. Yep, you've got it. Yeah, so this is a very uh, new and very powerful generation of computers that's coming online that can perform more than an exaflops worth of calculations per second. So um, that's a one followed by 18 zeros, uh, which is sort of hard to even wrap my brain around. Right. And these machines are really good at performing powerful simulations of things, complicated things like the climate or, you know, how galaxies uh, are forming or very complex things like turbulence that have just been really hard, hard to model. Um, and they're starting to come online. The first one called Frontier was built here in the U.S. and Europe is getting uh, its first one later this year. It's called uh, Jupiter and scientists will be using them for all kinds of uh, different simulations moving forward. I found, it, and I guess this is just my oddity, I found your five items that didn't make the list really more interesting and <laughs> captivating <laughs> than the things that were on the list. Uh, so l can we talk about those for a minute? We absolutely can, yes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the first, I think, is something that so many people, whether they're uh, senior population mm -hmm. uh, or whether they're people that have senior population in their families, uh, it's new drugs for Alzheimer's diseases. Right. Yes. This is something that we did not put on the list, but have certainly been watching. Um, and we did consider for the list uh, because Alzheimer's disease uh, is just a really devastating disease, it causes memory loss, and patients have not had many options for how to treat it. So it can be a very um, difficult diagnosis for a patient and their family to to process. And there is a new class of drugs coming out for Alzheimer's disease. These are New medicines, uh, the FDA approved one back in July made by a company called Biogen, and Eli Lilly has one um, as well. And these drugs have been shown to slow cognitive decline uh, by clearing out harmful plaques that build up in the brain. But we, you know, the benefits have been pretty modest. It, um, you know, in this case, it buys you maybe months, not years. And there are some pretty serious side effects that happened at a fair number of patients that were part of these trials. Uh, in some cases, the side effects can be fatal, They're side effects like brain swelling and bleeding. So these drugs have still got some issues, um, and we just weren't sure whether the benefits would outweigh the risks here for most people. So we decided not to not to put them on the list. But, but on the horizon, something yes. that you yes. definitely will be looking at for future years, I'm, I'm sure. Certainly. And in a lot of ways, you know, it's it's exciting to see progress in this area you know, of any, of any sort, because it's such an important, um, yeah, such a difficult disease that affects so many people. Um, so not to say not worthwhile research or not, you know, interesting, but, um, just not, not for the list for us this year. The next one on your five that didn't make the list that, that I found sort of oxymoronic was sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, People are complaining these days about private planes and private jets and, and using up so much fuel and, and hurting the environment. Talk about this new uh, invention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's been actually a good slow and steady progress on in this area for years now. And we're talking really here about 
um, alternative jet fuels, stuff that's made from agricultural waste or cooking oil, using that in planes uh, for a lower emission um, fuel. And so these have been in development for years. There are there have actually now been a number of demonstration flights using these these fuels, um, which is exciting. There are some plants opening that are going to be manufacturing you know these fuels. But to make a dent in the the problem of aviation emissions, we're going to need, frankly, just a lot more um, of of these fuels. And we just we felt like it was a little bit early to put this. We're excited to see the progress, and again, I think this will um, this is an area that will continue to develop. But um, you know, it's happening kind of at a very small scale right now compared to the the scale of the the problem itself. And so, I think we wanted to just see it get a little bit further. Um, solo yeah. solar, uh, not solo solar <laughs> geoengineering. Somehow that's that's difficult for me to say. Solar geoengineering. Now we talked about geoengineering in your in your ten. Uh, what makes this different? Yeah, so we uh, we've covered this space pretty closely. It's um, you know solar geoengineering. If you're not familiar, it involves releasing particles into the stratosphere to reflect the sun's energy back out to space. And sometimes uh, this is proposed as an idea for a way to counteract global warming because you're essentially cooling the planet by doing that. But there's a lot of disagreement within the scientific community about whether that makes sense to do. And um, at the same time, there are some companies and research groups that have started moving forward doing tests and seeing how this could be done and, and whether you know it's possible, what impact it's making. And those early tests have been pretty controversial. Um, Mexico even banned uh, solar geoengineering experiments last year after uh, reporting showed that um, there were some early tests happening in that country just because it wasn't you know, clear what the ultimate impact would be. But for us, it just these tests have so far been happening at a pretty small scale, and there's so much um, disagreement in the scientific community about whether this is you know, something we ought to be doing or not. We decided to just kind of wait and see on that one um, because while it's definitely been, uh, there's been a big conversation around it in the last year, we're not really sure, um, you know, how it's going to, how it's going to go moving forward and if this is going to be something that, um, that makes sense or that is done at a wide scale. All right. Your next one sort of um, blew my mind to use an old <laughs> phrase and that is male male reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Yes. Uh, <laughs> wow. Talk yeah. about turning society on its ear. Uh, talk about this one. This this one was fascinating. Yep. Yeah. This is such an interesting one. Um, so th- last uh, year. In March, there was a really neat uh, proof of concept experiment that some scientists in Japan uh, announced. They had taken two male mice and they used cells from those mice to produce healthy offspring. And so they did that by transforming some of the cells that came from two male mice into eggs and then fertilizing those eggs and implanting uh, those embryos into female mice. So basically this was showing that it's possible to use cells from two male mice, two mice of the same sex to produce offspring, which is very cool and also kind of, you know, mind blowing. And, um, you know, who knows, like, I, I think they'll continue with this work. Maybe someday they'll show that the same thing can be done in other kinds of animals, possibly even someday far down the road, even in humans. Um, but this first test was just 
in mice and a lot of things that work in mice don't always work in people. Um, so we decided since it was a mouse study to not feature on the list, but super interesting and, um, something that we're definitely going to be watching and covering moving forward. And the last one on your five that didn't make the list, uh, seems something that is, makes so much sense to me that I'm wondering why it's, uh, cutting edge and that is over the counter Narcan. Mm -hmm. Uh, and maybe you can explain to our audience, those who don't understand what Narcan is. Sure. Yeah. Narcan is a, a spray, a nasal spray that uh, is really um, an important tool in the fighting the opioid uh, epidemic. It can reverse overdoses uh, and undoubtedly, you know, saves many lives every year already because of this, but now it is available over the counter uh, in many more places. And so having easy access to Narcan, uh, you know, imagine will have an even greater impact on public health. Opioid overdoses are um, now killing about 80,000 Americans a year. So um, the ability to get this, you know, this drug into more people's hands and give them a tool to, to fight that is really amazing. Um, so yeah, it's now available nationwide places like CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, people can have it on hand, um, more, you know, more easily, more readily. Uh, so I agree, agree. I agree with you. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, very happy to see this, but, um, yeah, we didn't put it on the list because Narcan has been around a while. The technology itself, you know, the drug itself is, has been out there. Um, and, uh, it was really more about the kind of distribution, I guess, in this case, the, the switch to making it over the counter that was, was most no noteworthy. With a lot of technological breakthroughs, uh, Amy, there are uh, societal repercussions. There are also uh, ethical issues. I, I notice in your publication, you you don't talk about the ethics of anything, or the, if there is an ethical dispute. It, it's just, here's the technology, here's what it might do. Uh, is that purposeful? I would challenge you on that and say that we do cover that a lot, actually. We talk about it quite a bit, and um, especially in our AI coverage, speaking of one of the items on the list, AI for Everything, we've right. done kind of extensive coverage in that area, especially um, of issues like bias and AI, and also some of the, um, you know, very harmful impacts, you know, whether it's uh, non-consensual deep fakes or um, other issues that have um, that have come up as AI has just taken kind of taken the world by storm. So that's actually that is actually a very common area of coverage for us. We, you know, our approach to technology is not writing about technology for technology's sake, not covering it, you know, in a vacuum, but very much thinking about how technology fits within the broader context of society, including the, you know societal impacts, political um, environment, and the kind of economic viability. Uh, we think that's, you know, really covering that surround is like the whole the whole picture of technology. And that's our, yeah, that's our would responsibility you, as well. Would you agree, though, that ethics and ethical questions and certainly legal ramifications always fall behind technological advancements? Well, we're seeing, yeah, I mean, we're seeing that right now in terms of the AI space, all the lawsuits coming up, um, you know, against uh, the creators of these generative models, uh, you know, claiming copyright infringement, uh, whether it's writers or artists or major media publications like the New York Times or, or photo services. Um, so I think that I think that you're right that often, you know, technology um, 
you know, comes out and then the reaction to it, um, it's, there's a bit of catching up in terms of the legal and the political frameworks uh, by which we, we try and understand and incorporate those technologies into our lives, which we can absolutely see happening right now uh, in, in AI in particular. Autonomous vehicles, another area where I, I know the law is way behind. <laughs> yes. And we, you know, this is actually one of the things in our poll that we have, robo-taxis in our poll, because um, uh, there was, there's just, I mean, there's been a lot of movement uh, in the last year, especially with these services deploying in more places. You know, California made a big move to allow Cruise and Waymo to operate, um, you know, in more in more spots than they had before, but then you know, cruises run into all kinds of trouble, safety safety incidents. Um, they've had layoffs. They've done a recall of all their vehicles. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, other companies are kind of moving moving forward in this space. Waymo's still got you know its expansion plans and is is proceeding with those. There's a lot happening in China uh, with regard to robo taxis as well. But yeah, I mean, that's a whole that is a whole another area where um, you know technology is moving forward, and then we're still kind of figuring out exactly what that's going to mean for these other areas of our lives, lives and society. Well, I just committed a journalistic no-no, which is burying my lead. <laughs> uh, let me, let me ask you, why does your publication even do these lists? Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I know you get a lot of readership uh, through them, but you know, what's the purpose? Well, we, you know, we understand how, um, because, because we're following technology all day, every day, like we understand how confusing it can be out there. Um, there's a lot going on, uh, there, you know, there's a lot of hype, like I said earlier, it's hard to know what really matters and to just cut through all of that and to see clearly, um, you know, where, you know, where there is, uh, you know, true advances happening. And so this list is our, you know, earnest attempt to help our audience navigate all these things. And, you know, if you're not keeping up with the news every single day um, on technology, then, or even every single week, then like this list hopefully gives you kind of a way to get a snapshot of like, okay, well, these are, here are 10 things that we really think um, are worth paying attention to. And here's a little bit about each one. And, you know, it kind of helps you, um, you know, cut through everything else and understand, okay, if, you know, these are, these are 10 important advances. Um, and, this is, you know, this is a nice way of summarizing uh, our thoughts and perspective for for a broader audience. Amy, you've always had the gift of being able to take highly complex scientific matters mm -hmm. and translating them to uh, a lay audience in understandable terms. You do that often on uh, WNYC and NPR Science Friday as, as well as with your publications. How did you learn how to do that? Or is that just a, a gift that you've always had? Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Um, that means a lot uh, coming from you, especially. And, you know, I think for me, I've always just had uh, a great curiosity about the world. And so, um, you know, I love this role that I'm in now, like being able to kind of translate some of these things that are, you know, deeply fascinating, but, you know, not always very accessible and, um, you know, communicate those to a broader audience and, you know, layer on analysis about you know, the social or, or political impacts. So I, I would say it's partly uh, just a natural curiosity and, um, you know, my, you know, my, um, 
you know, a combination of my interests and also obviously a lot of practice. I've been to you know, journalism school and sat in many classes trying to, to do this well. And it is a, a skill that you learn over time, uh, how to hit the right, the right notes and, you know, be accurate, but also, um, you know, not, not overly technical. And so I think, um, you know, that's something that I've just, has, I've always been driven by that curiosity that I have and that interest in the world and um, really loved writing and communicating and editing and the work of that. And then just practice it a lot, I guess, <laughs> to try and to try and do it as well as I can. Uh, it, people who might uh, wonder about your career uh, at, after leaving school, you became communications coordinator for Downtown Association of Fairbanks, Alaska, <laughs> uh, and you jump from that to a science journalist. Uh, that seems like a really big leap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, a science journalism um, is something that I, even as an undergrad, I was interested in, but you're right. I did not go straight into it. I worked at a small nonprofit for a couple of years, which was fantastic. Uh, a lot of fun doing communications work in Alaska. But then over time I realized, you know, you know, writing and um, editing and reporting is, is really what I want to do. And so I, went from Alaska to this graduate school program um, at New York University that specializes in science and and uh, health and technology reporting. And that was really where I kind of learned the trade and got a lot of um, intense practice in and many, many edits back on things I had written and <laughs> trying to make it sharper and better and more clear. Um, and so, yeah, that was a, that was a big uh, career pivot, I would say, and one that I'm very you know grateful to have made because I, you know, I love what I do these days. You also got an MBA along the way. Why did you do that? I did do that. And it was, um, you know, my intention with that uh, was always to stay in the media business. But as I continued to work in different newsrooms, I became more and more interested in um, playing more of a leadership and management role and being part of kind of strategic conversations around what our newsroom was doing and how we were doing it. And so, um, you know, and just also kind of, Knew, knew, you know, started to become clear that I'd, um, you know, starting to manage people for the first time. And that's like a difficult <laughs> thing to do well. That's a whole different skill than a lot of, whole lot of difference, for. right? Yeah. Managing budgets, like none of this stuff is what you learn in journalism school. So you can learn it, you know, obviously in, in your work, just as you're doing it. But I actually wanted the, I wanted the reps. I wanted the practice uh, doing it in the classroom, thinking through things, you know, reading case studies, hearing how other people had done things, you know, well or poorly and um, getting getting as much of that as I could. And the program I went to was um, one of the only MBA programs that has a track that focuses um, partly on media and newsrooms, um, which was really wonderful thinking about media business models and trying to, um, you know, trying to get smarter about that as well, which I, I thought, I think it was really useful. So where do you go from here? Uh, you're sort of uh, at MIT Technology Review. You're sort of at the pinnacle of uh, technology and science writing, some would say. Uh, you just continue doing this? You're going to write a book? <laughs> where, where are you going with all of your talents? I mean, I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy to be where I'm at right now. I feel very fortunate. I feel uh, in many respects like I have my dream job today. And I, you know, I think there's also plenty of room still for growth uh, for me. I want to get better at what I, what I'm doing always and feel that I, I can. And I, um, 
you know, I really, I'm working in a smaller newsroom, which I really love also. Um, you get to do a lot of different things and be involved in a lot of different conversations. And so I very much enjoy that. And, um, you know, technology is just endlessly fascinating to me. I don't, I don't see myself getting bored with that anytime soon. How could you, uh, in these times we're living in? So yeah, I, you know, I'm very, I'm very happy and feel very fortunate just to get to do you write for a scientific audience or do you write for the general public? Well, we do certainly have many members of the scientific community in our audience, including many MIT alums. But our aim with our coverage is absolutely to make it accessible to a broader, um, wider general audience that is curious about science but has no, um, you know, subject matter expertise or technical background whatsoever. Is that becoming more difficult? Is it, my perception is that people, uh, especially since COVID. Uh, have gravitated away from science and away from fact-based analysis. Mm. Um, is that more difficult for you to garner an audience? I think there's definitely a challenge uh, nationwide for the media industry. There's a you know kind of a crisis of public trust in the media. Um, what you're saying of, of science may also be true. Um, you know, I hope and think that the kind of coverage we do, um, which is, you know, original reporting, um, you know, in-depth, um, uh, you know, useful analysis on on topics that are relevant um, or will be relevant um, to many people's lives. I hope that I hope that is still of value to many people. Um, but I do think we're yeah, we're in a very challenging environment. There's uh, no doubt about that. It's got to be frustrating to be a journalist who is is based in science and based in fact, and you report something as fact and document it with all of your uh, journalistic sources, and then have somebody go, "Well, that's not true. Uh, that's that's just uh, some conspiracy theory," <laughs> and you know there are people out there doing that. Yeah, you know, I try to stay focused on what we can control, which is the quality of the reporting we do, the, you know, the clarity of the writing that we're putting out there. I, you know, I just, I deeply believe in the value of good information and putting it, putting it online for the world. Um, and so I feel the best thing I, you know, in our newsroom can do is continue to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, there are definitely things that you can't control and um, that's, uh, that can be hard for sure. I'm going to give you, I uh, want to wrap up here shortly, but I want to give you uh, a, a chance to talk to young women out there. Uh, we hear and we see data that young women are not going into to STEM professions, uh, certainly not going into the sciences. Um, what advice would you give them? You You obviously have done this and done it very successfully. Well, thank you, Tom. I, I mean, it's a very personal decision for everybody, you know, what you choose to spend your life and career doing, what kind of work resonates with you. I think, um, I guess I'll just say from my perspective, I, I do think that this is like the most interesting way I could spend my time. Um, you know, my job is basically like learning about science and technology, you know, reading about it, writing about it, editing stories about it. I I just can't think of anything more, you know, interesting or that I'd rather do with my time. Um and there are, you know, there are ways to do it um, out there if people are, are motivated in that uh, direction. I, I, you know, I think science is, you know, one of the best ways, maybe the best way that we can can come to understand our world. It's not 
perfect. It can't tell us everything. Um, you know, it's uh, as messy as any other kind of human human profession. But I, you know, I find it um, really interesting as a way to understand the world and satisfy that curiosity I have. And I really, you know, loving love working um, in it and learning about it as part of my job every day. It's got to be fascinating uh, learning what you learn. Uh, I mean, evidenced by the list that we've just talked about. Uh, all of these are fascinating developments, and to be able to get into them and understand them at least enough to translate them for the general public uh, gives you something new every day, I'm sure. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. And, um, you know, I think that that is, that is a huge part of the appeal to me of wanting to be a science and technology journalist and cover these these things and work with a brilliant group of colleagues who are so smart on the topics that they cover and hearing kind of how they're thinking about them. You know, I benefit a lot from that just myself and really like this process of compiling this list together with everybody else in the newsroom, because I always learn so much, not just about the things that do make the list, but also all the stuff that doesn't. Um, some of which we talked about. And so, um, you know, that process for me is really satisfying and fun each year. Again, how do people get a hold of the 2024 10 Breakthrough Technologies as put out by the MIT Technology Review? How would they read about that and go in more depth? Sure. It's at our site, technologyreview.com, or you can um, check us out on the App Store. We've got a new, brand new app, MIT Technology Review. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So either either way, you'll you can find our way to the ten. You can find your way to the ten breakthrough technologies list, and um, yeah, explore it to your heart's content. And they also can subscribe, correct? Yes, which is really the best way to support any uh, <laughs> news organization <laughs> that you that you like. So absolutely. Amy, uh, we talked, uh, I think, three or four years ago, and it, it's been too long. Let's let's keep in touch, and uh, if you have any breakthrough that you think that uh, our audience ought to know about, please uh, reach out to me, and, and we'll get you on the air right away. Awesome. I will take you up on that, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Today, we've been talking with executive editor Amy Nordrum about MIT Technology Review's 2024 Breakthrough Technologies. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through your favorite podcast outlet. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone. <laughs>